you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today's episode is a second part to an earlier program we did on the Cold War that featured a local man who was one of the very first field agents for the newly formed National Security Agency. In 1954, Mr. Bob Jones was just 21 years old, but already an experienced spy. He was tasked with gathering information on both America's enemies as well as its allies. During the years that Mr. Jones was in the NSA, he traveled all over Europe, including to the countries of Germany, Belgium, Denmark, Italy, Greece, France, Scotland, Finland, Norway, and Turkey. Mr. Jones has recorded his incredible story in a short book titled Room 204, Story of a Cold War Spy. Mr. Jones, welcome back to History's Hook. Good morning, Tom. We're also joined in the studio today by my co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcom. Good morning, Professor Gidcom. Good morning, Tom. Mr. Bob, we should start by recapping a little bit about how you got recruited into the National Security Agency. Uh, you graduated from Haylong High School in 1951 with the aspirations of becoming a mechanical engineer. Uh, but after, I think you said, a semester, uh, That's you, correct. You, you, the funds run, ran dry, <laughs> as often happens, and you decided the military was your, your next path. Uh, where, where did you go for basic training, and, and how did the NSA come into your life? I went to my uh, basic training to Fort Knox, Kentucky, after being inducted into Fort Jackson, South Carolina, for uh, a lot of testing and so forth. But then I was carried to Fort Knox, Kentucky, and, and there I put in 16 weeks of very, very rigid infantry basic training, and uh, which at the end of that basic training, we... Uh, I, I, without knowing, I had no idea, I was uh, told to report to the orderly room, the, which was the company office. And uh, there I was met with a U.S. Uh, marshal who uh, had orders to carry me to Langley, Virginia, the headquarters, which was becoming the headquarters of the CIA at that time, being moved from Washington, downtown Washington, D.C. So during your basic training, was there any testing that you did that was different from what the other recruits were, were doing? No, it really wasn't. What testing I had was previously at Fort Jackson. You know, I had a lot of uh, preliminary testing. And I, the only thing I can relate to, Tom, is uh, I had some previous experience with Morse code uh, from scouting experiences of my scout leader and merit badges and so forth. And uh, I was familiar with the dots and the dashes. And, and maybe that's what picked me up. And then and, and, and for some reason called somebody's attention to uh, the radios, the Morse code. So this marshal picks you up after basic training, and he takes you to Virginia. Um, and at CIA headquarters, you were engaged in more specialized training. Can you describe some of the training that you went through there? Yeah, it, we was uh, divided. In, it was just a group of seven of us, and uh, we were there for four weeks. And our primary training was to, to, uh, to just be able to observe and know what we see and, and, and any changes that might be made. And we was... Uh, a lot of one-on-one -on -one training with CIA agents who would carry us to different little areas and villages and towns in and around Langley. And, and there we would observe and watch for a few hours. 
see any changes that might be made in the next hour or the next day, the next week even, uh, that, that we observed things that was going on. Uh, and that became a very vital part in my further uh, experiences with the, with the National Security Agency, just to know what you see and, and, and recognize changes within that what you see. So after we last spoke, uh, I came across an article about a group of people who are actually suing the federal government uh, related to training uh, that they had gone through uh, by the CIA in the 1950s. Are you familiar with a program known as MK Ultra? Have you ever heard of that no, before? No, I'm it, not. It was a many-faceted program, the, the basis of which was focused on mind control. The project was organized through the Office of Scientific Intelligence of the CIA and coordinated with the United States Army Biological Warfare Laboratory. Um, the operation was officially sanctioned in 1953 by the government, but declassified MK Ultra documents indicate that they studied hypnosis in the early 1950s. Experimental goals included hypnotically increasing ability to learn and recall complex written matter, studying hypnosis and polygraph examinations, hypnotically increasing ability to observe and recall complex arrangements of physical objects, sort of what you're describing some of your training was, and studying the relationship of personality uh, personality to susceptibility to hypnosis. Did, did you undergo any hypnosis while you were in training? Oh, yes. I wasn't aware of what you were saying, but I was certainly in the middle of that, that kind of training that went on. Uh, and that was at Ben Hill Farms. Uh, after my four weeks training at Langley, we were moved, the, the group of seven of us, to uh, Ben Hill Farms, Virginia. And, and there we underwent eight weeks of the most intense mental training uh, I, I believe any human being could go through uh in my own estimation i think that was strictly to see how much you could stand and where your breaking points might be we were subjected to hypnosis and uh to what extent that had on my actions my bearings i, I couldn't tell you uh but i know the the training was so intense we would go out for hours on hours Going through the training and mental uh, abuse, you might say, uh, we would then be able to go back. We always booked in, in private rooms there at Ben Hill Farms. We would, could go back to our bedrooms. Sometimes we would stay an hour, sometimes three, sometimes 15 minutes, and we'd be called right back out. Three hours was the very most sleep I had at any one time for eight weeks Wow! in that training. At what point between basic training and the time that you go into the NSA did you realize? Did they actually tell you you were being trained for espionage? Uh, yes, uh, uh, they did. And this was in uh, when uh, our then-president, Harry Truman, made an announcement to the nation. It was in November 1952, I believe. And uh, uh, we were told after that, uh, his address to the nation uh, that he had spoke, and one of the things he announced at that time was that there was going to be a new super-secret agency formed being called the National Security Agency. And uh, and we were told then by our leader and our officers there that we were a very first part of that. Um, so they did make you aware that you were, you were part of this at, new... At that time, yes. It was in October of 1952 that Truman established the NSA, uh, but officially on November 4th, just like you just said, it was Robert Lovett, the Secretary of Defense, who made the new agency responsible for all communications intelligence. Since President Truman's memo was a classified document, the existence of the NSA was not known to the public at the time. 
Uh, and due to its ultra secrecy, the U.S. intelligence community referred to the NSA as no such agency and sort of kept it under wraps for a, for a long time. Did you have to be careful? Were, were you calling it NSA? No, 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 no. We didn't, we didn't know that it was at NSA. We just knew that we was going into espionage uh, of, some, of some kind, uh, but not with an official name at that time. Okay. After your training, you were immediately put on board a ship to Frankfurt, Germany, uh, and after an eventful trip to the NSA headquarters in Frankfurt, you were sent to SHAPE headquarters in Paris. Uh, remind us what SHAPE, what shape was. SHAPE was a, 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 it stood for the su- uh, Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe, and there was all the NATO nations located in right outside Paris in, um, oh, I can't call the name of the, little, the, of the, of the town, but anyway, right outside Paris, a little way, shape was a. I, I recall the building shaped somewhat like a, the Pentagon is today. All the NATO nations had their little individual sections that they were uh, carried on their business, uh, but it was all brought together under one, one, one being, nearly. So by the time you get to shape, have you completed your training, or is there more training that's happening in Paris? No, no, we had basically com- had completed our training. We were still in, in uh, groups of seven in our group there. We had a what we call a chief of our station. He was an ex-CIA agent, uh, a very, very uh, intelligent man. Uh, and we had uh, uh, two uh, full radio operators, two cryptographic operators, and myself as the agent of the station, and then our chief. Made it still a group of, of seven within us. I suppose most of the higher-ups at this point in time were former OSS people. Uh, were some of them World War II veterans? Oh, uh, yes. Yes, they were. Yeah. Any of them stand out in your mind? Do you remember? Uh, yes. Uh, the one at, at, uh, at, at Frankfurt uh, was, was more laid-back, uh, fatherly-type individual. That uh, I only had a few days with him, but the one that was at Shape Headquarters at uh, Nassau, uh, NSA's station there, was a very, very sharp individual, uh, and without a doubt, when you walked in the room, you knew that he was the one in charge. So this all sounds very serious, Mr. Bob, and make no mistake, it is, but were you able to make friends? Was there time to enjoy Paris while you were there, or is this all business all the time? It was all business all the time. We, we were uh, told not to become uh, acquainted and, and, and friendly with one another, Everything was strictly on the business side. Uh, uh, we were not told. We were told to, to, nobody else was really interested in where we came from and who we were and, and anything about our past. We were strictly strictly business. So you came from a small town in, in Tennessee. Was it lonely? Uh, yes. Yes, it was. Pretty much being by yourself. You were living by yourself. And in. you had a big family. You came from a big family, uh, too. I was a baby of eight. <laughs> so you find yourself in in Paris all of a sudden, and uh, it seems like it would be a kind of a, a lonely existence. Were you scared? Uh, yes, I was. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, you know, I was also taken when I read your account at what a lonely existence that must have been. And of course, you talked about in your training, you never had more than three hours at a time of downtime. But but in Paris, certainly you. You you probably had more time than that, and how did you spend your time? Did you read? Uh, I toured the city of Paris quite a bit uh, uh, by myself. Uh, we were not not together, and, and we had the option 
uh, of living in, uh, on our own with a, a financial uh, uh, obligation, but to stay in, in Paris if we wanted to, or we could live at the shape headquarters. There was some billeting areas there that we could could stay at, and I, I did some with both. I guess I was looking for for an out or looking for a friend, some kind, but uh, uh, it never really existed. I, I I didn't grow to know other people's names and where they came from. You know, that's just what you do with friends. It it never existed the whole time. Huh. Well, we're going to have to uh, pause for a, a few minutes. Let's take a moment and listen to our sponsors. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can always count on us for a great selection of late model, low mileage, one owner vehicles. All have been thoroughly inspected and are ready to go. You can even save time and buy online with our online shopping tool. Looking to sell your vehicle? Great news! We're paying top dollar for your trade. All makes, all models, and in any condition. Trade in and trade up today. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can count on us. Hi, Terry Tillis from Tillis Jewelry. When you think of diamonds, what do you think of? Rare, precious, timeless, sparkles like the sun. They are timeless and nothing like them on earth. Then do you think, where do I buy local to buy the perfect ring? Maybe a diamond pendant or earrings or maybe a new diamond band. Look no further. Tillis Jewelry carries all your diamond and jewelry needs. Stop by and see our wonderful collection. And remember, if you don't know your diamonds, know your jeweler. Tillis Jewelry, downtown Columbia. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard, so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole bar. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. This is Dr. Dominic Mancini from the Dr. Gill Center. Have you been injured in a car accident? Are you still in pain? Untreated whiplash injuries to the spine may lead to future conditions, such as neck pain, low back pain, and headaches. The doctors at the Dr. Gill Center specialize in detecting and treating these conditions before they get worse. Our accident consultations are free. Call me painfree.com or call 615-551-9224. Do you have trees that need trimming or removed? Do you have stumps that you want ground? A1 Tree Removal is a family-owned and operated business local to Columbia and Lewisburg and servicing surrounding Middle Tennessee. They are licensed and insured and provide free estimates. No job is too big. No tree is too small. Give old Luke a call or text Luke at 931-359-3113. Or you can check them out on Facebook and tell A1 Tree Removal that you heard this ad on the radio. If you love America, you will love A1 Tree Removal. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. 
Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking once again with Mr. Bob Jones, who is one of the very first field agents with the National Security Agency back in the early 1950s. In 1953, Mr. Bob, you were sent on three missions to Malta, which was then a British protectorate. What was happening in Malta that you're Malta of all places. Uh, you're you're in Paris initially, but you're sent sent to Malta. What's happening in that country that you're being sent there so frequently? Well, there was a, a lot of, of air force and naval maneuvers that was being taking place in and around Malta, all over the Mediterranean, and uh, and Malta was pretty much the communication center for the British Navy at that time. Very little air force, but their British Navy, good harbor facilities in Malta at that time. And uh, uh, that's why we was there. And we was billeted. Uh, our radio and, and crypto operators were billeted with the Navy, British Navy. But uh, I myself was stayed downtown in, in Valletta, which was the capital of, of Malta. And, and uh, uh, I was somewhat dispatched, acting and posing as a civilian instructor to all our other operators that was taking part in the maneuvers. And your mission is to gather intelligence on the British. Right, right, absolutely. We was monitoring and, and trying to find out all their frequencies they operated on, their time schedules, how they changed frequencies, when they changed frequencies, uh, anything that went on within their communication, even into the, trying to get into their cryptographic uh, systems and how they coded and decoded messages. Uh, so it was quite an operation, and, and we was there on three different missions, uh, three different in, uh, maneuvers completely, but... Uh, we was basically looking and observing, looking for the same things. And one of the most successful missions that you undertook, you were able to, you were able to capture one of the very first encryption machines from a NATO country. Can you yes. can you remind us how that played uh, out? Yeah, I, I didn't actually capture it, Tom. I don't guess, but I, I I got somewhat close to a British sailor, and as I found out, he was uh, working within the communications on that battleship that was at dock uh, there. Sailors are all what they then called with their ho- on their holidays, and uh, they were celebrating and, and doing a lot of drinking and fun times in down in Valletta. And uh, uh, with this British sailor, I, after I found out he was working in the communications, I thought this might be an opportunity. And I told him, "Gee, I'd sure love to see and be able to operate and, and, and do something with a British uh, crypto machine." And uh, he said, "Well," he said. Uh, I might could help you with that. He wanted to know what I would, it would be worth if he could get me one. I said, well, at least I'd say $500. And uh, at that time, he said, golly, he said, man, if you got 500 I could probably get you two of them. <laughs> so I remember that so well. Do you, uh, why did you pick him? Was there something about him? Is there, did your training tell you that he, he was a potential target more than somebody else, or do you think that? Tom, without a doubt, he was the heavy drinker in the crowd. And the one that was pretty boastful and and a, a very outgoing sort of fella, and uh, I just felt like uh, he was he was approachable, and and, and also helped knowing that he was working in the communications, he might have the liberty to to do what I wanted to do and and to get a machine, and ultimately that was our our go. Mr. Bob, you you told in your in your story that he bit off a big chunk of a of a glass mug and chewed up the glass and swallowed it. Yes, yes, he did. Uh, uh, pretty heavy drinking going on in a little tavern down in Valletta, and, and uh, uh, suddenly he uh, bent over with a big mug, a clear glass mug of beer sitting on the table, and he just gripped it with his teeth 
and turned that mug up, drank it down. And then at the end of it, when he finished the beer that was in it, he, he just chomped down on that glass. Uh, I, I don't know why I didn't cut him all to pieces. <laughs> and he stood there and uh, right, stood up at the table and, and began to chew on that glass. Honest to God, he actually chewed that glass, run it out on his tongue. You could see he'd, he'd chewed it to a fine powder. He took another beer and swallowed it down. Wow. Quite an individual. I guess. Do you, so you got the encryption machine from him. Do you know what happened to that sailor? Yes. Uh, after I returned back to Paris uh, some couple of days later, when I got back with that machine, and it was maybe maybe a week uh my chief called me in of our, our station and, and told me, he said, you know, uh, that, that sailor that you got that machine off of, the crypto machine, uh, I understand through a release from the British government here at NATO uh, headquarters at Shape uh, that he had been, there's been a sailor off that ship arrested and charged with the theft of a, a encryption machine. Uh, of course, I knew immediately who it was. I could see, I could see the man in my face just looking at him, and I knew that who it was. And he said, but, but further than that, he said, I, I need to tell you that he's committed suicide uh, after being charged. And that uh, it, it really, really tore me up, really tore me up, because I felt like, and not at that moment, uh, I feel it even today, that I'm responsible for that man's death. Uh, is a casualty of the Cold War, I would say, Mr. Bob. This this was part of what was happening uh, during during that time. Let's switch gears a little bit. On Christmas 1953, you were back in Mount Pleasant uh, visiting your high school sweetheart, Miss Jean. How did it feel going back home after all you had experienced thus far in the military? Well, pretty strange, I think, Tom. I, I, I didn't really feel at home, but I had a girlfriend back there that I loved dearly. And uh, and I did go back. I had some days of liberty, and and I went back. I, I got back to Mount Pleasant on about the I don't know, fourteenth, fifteenth of December. Gene uh, uh, and I was married then on uh, December the thirtieth, and, uh, and 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 just six days after that, on January the sixth, I was called back to Paris, told to report back to Shape Headquarters. That very day, I left Nashville on a plane to New York and back to back to Paris. I found it interesting that it was uh, during that visit that Miss Jean told you that she wanted to get married the, the very next day. I have to say, Mr. Bob, that Miss Jean was probably a better spy than you. She was able to break you that quickly. Makes me concerned about the, what the Russians might do to you. Well, yeah. uh, <laughs> they, they, they might ought to have recruited her as well. She, she obviously, uh, she, she's, a, she, she's persuasive. She's, she's quite a lady, quite a lady. We've held on, and we've been married now, coming up on 60 six years in, in December, so we, we're pretty close to another anniversary. And and at that time, at the time that you got married, you didn't tell her what you did in the Oh, military. no, no, no. She had no idea of what was going on in my life, of what the experiences that uh, that I had already had, which had been several. Uh, but uh, she had no idea. And even 62 years later, she had no idea. My children had no idea what had gone on in my life. It remained a secret locked up in my my heart and my brain that I just couldn't just couldn't talk about some of the things that happened. Upon your return to Europe in 1954, you went to Denmark for uh, some joint maneuvers there. And once again, you were successful in getting a an encryption machine, this time from the Russians. Uh, 
remind us, we talked about this in our, our first segment, but, but if you don't mind, uh, we recap that for us again and, and how that transaction. Tom, we uh, uh, had suspect that there, that there was a Danish colonel in charge of their communication center at Karup, Denmark. This was a Danish Air Force base just outside of Copenhagen. And, uh, and I was, was charged with, with finding find out what was going on. You know, was he acting as a double agent with the Russian secret police and, and still, still within the Danish Air Force? And uh, uh, one day while we was in training and working there, he and I both was observing the, the, uh, the crypto operators uh, coding and decoding messages, Danish and American. And, uh, and I just casually mentioned to him, I said, gee, boy, I'd love to have my, get my hands on a, on a Russian crypto machine. And uh, he, he made no comment. You know, he just seemed like, well, he, he didn't even hear what I said. Uh, but about two days later, he came back to me and said, gee, fella, said, uh, were you real when you uh, uh, mentioned you'd like to have a Russian in crypto machine? And I said, yes, yes, I would. So uh, he said, well, that just might could be arranged. We'll see what, what might happen if you want to pursue it. And I said, very definitely. Uh, uh, let's go with it. And uh, he said, well, it's going to cost some money. And I said, well, you find out what what all and the details and how much money and, and let me know. I'm going to so, stop you right there. Okay. We're going to leave it with a right. cliffhanger. We're going to have to take another break. Uh, we'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. Hi, I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee, on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hose for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. Are you new to Murray County? We want to welcome you and your family. We are a local residential garbage service, and we want to be your garbage man. We've been around for over 30 years, so we have a reputation. Check us out at garbagemaninc.com or call Mike at 931-540-0919. You could also ask your neighbor. 931-540-0919. For 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has worked hard for their customers and provided the highest quality jewelry at the best price. They keep going back. Recent renovations have allowed them to expand their inventory. More high quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. They also buy gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still great service. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. 
I am Jack Blackstone. And I'm Emery Blackstone. Together, we are Greenway Tech Repair. Tired of slow computers, cracked phone screens, and fancy home electronics you don't know how to use? We can help. We provide local on-site services as well as remote troubleshooting for any job, no matter how large or small, from computers and laptops to mobile devices and home electronics. We Blackstone Brothers are eager to serve our community. Find us on Facebook at Greenway Tech Repair or by phone at 931-388-2691. That's on Facebook at Greenway Tech Repair or by phone at 931-388-2691. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. I'm joined in the studio today by Mr. Bob Jones, a former NSA spy, uh, along with my co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcombe. Uh, Mr. Bob, you were uh, just explaining how you started this transaction of acquiring a Russian encryption machine, uh, and uh, you're uh, in a transaction with a Danish colonel. Uh, yes, we was highly suspect that he was a double agent uh, working with the Russian secret police, and and uh, as it turned out, he was. Uh, but he told me that uh, if you are interested and in, and in, and in, in can make things happen, I've got a friend that's got a friend that can that can get an encryption machine. Uh, as it turned out, in in, in, our, in our further briefing, we found out that his friend that had a friend was a Russian major working in the communication center, Russian at the embassy in Berlin, and uh, and they were suspect of him being being a traitor. So at that time, they began to without me knowing what was going on, uh, set up a, a, a three-way thing that they was going to get expose their Russian major as a traitor to their country and also draw me into the, to their hook and to their nest of being, being charged with a, with a spy and, and within getting a Russian encryption machine. And, uh, and the, I guess the, the web began to spin so much that I wasn't aware of and uh, as we set up our, our, our rendezvous and, and to make our exchange, we, and it was set up. I was assigned a, a, a CIA agent to work with me uh, very closely, and, uh, and we did. We, uh, he set up a, a rendezvous that we were going to have in Hamburg, Germany, about a five-, six-hour car trip from, from Copenhagen. And, uh, and we traveled there two days before we were going to make our exchange and meet with this Russian major. We'd already met with him several times, setting up our plans and what was going to happen and, 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 and uh, on the amount of money we were going to give for it. And uh, we jewed with him a little bit, I guess. Uh, he originally wanted 15000 and we settled for ten, which was uh, equivalent probably to uh, close to $90,000 in today's money. Uh, but we met in Hamburg, and we uh, uh, began to observe what was going on. We was there two days early, thought we had everything set up. And I, again, I was assigned a room there at the hotel, room 204, which kind of it was kind of eerie to me once I saw that key in my hand. Uh, that number keeps popping up in your in throughout your life. Absolutely. Even to 54 years of living at that address that I have just recently <laughs> moved away from. Uh, but we were there. Uh, went to the room. I met the, the Russian major. We uh, exchanged uh, condolences and so forth in the, in the lobby. We went up to our room, and, and we both went in. I remember distinctly locking the door behind me, uh, dropping the key down in my left top coat pocket, and, uh, and he laid his encryption machine. It was in a leather-bound case on the bed and opened it up, and, uh, and I was thrilled to death. I thought, well, boy, 
I, I, I've hit the jackpot here today. Uh, but about the time those thoughts come in my mind, uh, the door jarred and come burst open, and <clears throat> in come two of, at that time what I thought two of the biggest men in my life. Uh, immediately I knew that they were the secret uh, Russian secret police, and I didn't know what why they were there. Uh, and you're not armed. I'm not armed, but uh, Tom, the CIA agent that had been signed with me, he had previously we had gotten together and he was hiding in the room. You knew he was in the room? I knew that he okay. was in our room, hiding behind a curtain. Uh, the, the room was very primitive somewhat. It wasn't much more than a bed and a, a small chest, a chair. Uh, the bathroom just had a little curtain pulled over the door, and, and, the, and the closet just had a curtain just kind of stretched across the doorway. And that's where he was hiding. Uh, I didn't know where he, which room he was in, but I, was, I knew he would be in one of those two rooms. Um the, the the Russian agents and, and the Russian major began to argue and fuss and between one another. All the communication was in Russian. I didn't know what they were saying, but I knew it was getting very heated. They was pushing him, shoving him back and forth from one another. And I noticed that one of the agents had a knife, must have been had a blade 12, 14 inches long, a very sharp point. And the other one had a pistol in his hand. And within the, just three or four seconds, very, very shortly, one of them grabbed him and jerked his head back, and the other one just took that knife and cut his head, I mean completely off, and dropped his head on the floor at my feet and shoved his limp body over against me, which covered me with his blood and so forth. And uh, at the same instance, shots began to be fired, and it was my CIA agent that was had shot one of the Russian agents, and they was exchanging gunfire. <laughs> And, uh, and both Russian agents had fallen to the floor, and, uh, and, and I looked up, and my CIA agent was coming out of the closet, all bent over and bleeding profusely. Uh, he fell across the corner of the bed right on top of where I had laid my top coat uh, uh, and went to his knees and fell across that top coat. And I, I, I went down to him just like I was saying a prayer. I guess I was praying because I was scared to death at the time. And I said, what can I do? I'll go get help. And he just said, no finished the mission and at that that was his last word he, he he slumped over and fell over against me and and i lowered his body to the floor did you ever know and, his name mr bob i never knew his name tom uh he never knew mine but i knew instantly instantly that god had just stepped into my life saved my life through him uh because without him i would i wouldn't be here today yes sir I, i've been trying to do a little research and i was hoping to to, to be able to find information on who he was uh the CIA and the NSA have declassified uh, a, a, quite a large number of documents from the 1950s, but mm -hmm. as of right now, I've not been able to find him. He, no. He's not on the wall of honor, as so many are not, no. of course, as you no. know. Um, but it, I, 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 I'd love I, to know. I got no idea is. after I left that room that, that day, that afternoon, uh, what happened to him. I don't know uh, who took charge of his body or where it went. Uh, I, I Nothing beyond that as what happened. You were able to get the encryption machine out. Absolutely. And yep. and you write that after the mission, you were ordered to go undercover for a while because the Soviets were embarrassed by what had happened, yes. probably more yes. than a little angry yeah. uh, and maybe looking for you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I was told, you know, that they would not forget easily the Russian secret police and that they would be looking for me. And uh, uh, my, my chief, and I'm sure with his authorities, also felt like I need to take out, be taken out of 
the, the, the fishbowl, you might say. And I was, um, I called it quarantine, <laughs> back to shape headquarters. I lived there. I didn't leave that building for the next uh, five months, and uh, maybe, maybe close to six months. Uh, I worked within the radio stat section and the cryptographic sections, but I did not leave the U.S. section, not even to go to the to the Italian areas of that building. I stayed, eat, and lived in that one section right there for uh, nearly six months. Um, Couldn't leave. After a short respite, your chief asked if you'd be willing to take on another mission, uh, this time to monitor a military maneuver in Turkey. Uh, well, on that flight there, it was announced that the plane you were on was being ordered by Soviet pilots to land in Soviet-allied Bulgaria. Uh, this story, I think, is the scariest one of all. Uh, tell, tell us what happened. Uh, <clears throat> Tom, uh, I, I did. He, he called me by name first time. He called me Bob, and he asked me if I could thought I could do one more mission. Uh, I would have gone anywhere in the world at that time because I was just— uh, had been in that building and so quarantined, I was I was ready to go and do anything, and uh, uh, we did. I flew from from Paris to Rome and on on my way to Istanbul on a British European Airways flight. Flight, and uh, uh, suddenly, about the time the pilot announced that uh, we was going to have to to land, make a, a forced landing, I had previously noticed just a few seconds before that there was a couple of planes flying dangerously close to us. And as the pilot told us that we had been intercepted by the Russian uh, uh, Air Force uh, planes and they w- we was being forced down and we were going to make a landing, he said, I'm so sorry, folks, uh, but uh, I have not done anything wrong. We've not violated any airspace, but uh, we got to go down. And I knew immediately uh, why we was going down. I knew within my, my own mind, my heart, and it was pumping 100 miles an hour. I promise you that. But uh, we went down and landed, and it was because I knew that the Russian secret police was looking for me, not for anything else, it was not because of what anything the pilot had done. And uh, uh, once we was on the ground, uh, uh, I noticed uh, some Bulgarian uh, uh, soldiers that was coming out, a couple of officers with them, to the plane where we were sitting on the, on the outside the, uh, the air station there. And <clears throat> they come aboard the plane, Talked to the pilot, and if within a uh, <clears throat> a few minutes, the pilot told us that there would be a a gentleman, a soldier that would come down the aisle with a box, and we were all ordered to put our passports in that box when he passed down the aisle of the plane. There was twenty six of us, twenty six passengers on that plane. I remember distinctly. So uh, this is a small plane. This isn't even a larger. Plane. Oh no, no, no! It was just a small two prop plane, uh, which most of them were. You know, it was that was before the. Uh, time of jet travel and anything so it was a a smaller plane uh only 26 aboard passengers aboard that and you're plane. trapped they're, i'm trapped you're not I'm, getting off this plane no and they're asking for your passport right as he started down the aisle uh i was sitting toward the back of the plane and uh next to a, a lady i believe that she was italian and she uh began to she didn't think i maybe knew what they was talking about she had already gotten her passport out of her out of her purse and was holding it and she was motioning to me to get mine and 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 again uh my lord and god has stepped up in my life he told me and a lot of people wouldn't believe this but i could hear the words don't turn in that passport keep it and i motioned to her no and she motioned again i needed to do it 
and, and, and suddenly the Bulgarian soldier was right on us. She dropped hers in that box, and I didn't make a motion. I just sat there, and he hurriedly went on down the aisle, didn't realize that I had not dropped a passport, and I guess maybe he thought that she had dropped mine because I was sitting next to the window on the plane in with hers. But uh, they left the plane with a guard on the plane uh, uh, to watch all of us. We sat there for nine hours on that plane. Which is unimaginable to me, the stress that you had to have for nine hours and what that must have felt like. And I knew why we were sitting there. Absolutely. In my mind, I knew why we were sitting there. So, uh, And so they have passports. They, they know there are 26 people on board, so they should have 26 passports. But somehow they failed to count the, the 26 people and the 26 passports to match that uh, one against the other. Uh, that's the only my guessing. That why they they just overlooked uh, a passport that they was looking for, uh, being Bulgarian and they was working we we in with the Russians, but the Russians weren't there at the time. It was all Bulgarian uh, military that was doing the the interviewing and and the stuff on the plane that was taking place. We're gonna stop one more time, and uh, I want to come back to the story and 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 sort of learn what was going on in your mind during that nine nine hours of thinking. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. This is Jim Ross, and you are listening to Front Porch Radio, WKOM 101.7, located in Columbia, Tennessee. For 40 years, Beck Dental Care has been the personalized and comfortable option for the health of your smile. The caring staff maintains a high level of safety protocols and attention to detail. Advanced technology provides your choice of sedation and the best of dental implant solutions to restore complete oral health. Open until 6 p.m. two nights a week. Call us at 931-388-8452 or visit us online at beckdentalcare.com. Terrence here at Shepherd Lumberyard, where we value you, the customer. We've been serving Columbia and surrounding areas since 1946. We're located in our new location at 103 Cemetery Avenue. Anything that has to do with building or remodeling, we're here to assist. When you shop local, you help shape the community. We are locally owned, family owned, and veteran owned. And by the way, God is in charge. You can reach us at 931-388-3612. And our website is shepherdlumberyard at yahoo.com. Conquerors are made of different stuff. When the waves come crashing down, they beg for more. When the drop-off sinks beneath them, they grit their teeth and dive headfirst. And when others quiver, conquerors stare thrills in the face with steely eyes of determination. Soaky Mountain Water Park, Sevierville, Tennessee. Conquer the mountain. Plan your adventure at SoakyMountainWaterPark.com. The NASCAR Xfinity Series. They tightly bunch up two by two. Off turn number four. Green flag goes in the air. Heads to the first stage. Well, one car gets crossed up. Off two and onto the back straightaway. They're spinning down to the inside. To take on the Monster Mile. Checkered flags are flying here at the start-finish line and win number three for Austin Sendrick. It's the A-Game 200. It's Saturday at noon on WKOM 101.7 FM. One of the best things about having kids is grandkids. 
and one of the best ways to get them outdoors is to take them fishing. It will open up a whole new world of conversation and wonder. It's easy to get started. For more information and instructional videos to get you going, visit tnwildlife.org. Purchase your license at gooutdoorstennessee.com. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. We're in the middle of a story with Mr. Bob Jones, who is an NSA uh, agent in the early 1950s. And Mr. Bob, you're explaining how you're on your way to Turkey. Your plane is forced down by the Soviets. Uh, Bulgarian soldiers come on board uh, and gather your passports. But for some reason, that's really pretty inexplicable. They don't count the 26 people to match the what they ought to have, 26 passports. Uh and you don't have a you don't have an explanation as to why. No, I really don't, Tom. That's just my summation that that I that their passport count and the number of passengers uh, uh, just didn't jive, and but they didn't they didn't count it. That, that's my thinking. That I, that's the only way that they could have missed it. So you're nine hours on this plane, this small cramped space with 26 people. There's no place for you to go, and they have you sitting there for nine hours. What's going through your mind? In that nine hours. Well, first of all, the, the, the restroom facilities uh, with, with those people, it becomes very unusual, and, and that was that was horrible within the plane. Uh, but I, yeah, I, my mind was, was just just going a hundred miles an hour as to what was going to take place. I knew that when they come back aboard the plane, that you know that there would be some action taken, that they would single me out and 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 take me off the plane. Uh, uh, which, what would have been the outcome of that? And we talked about this a little bit. Had the Russians got a hold of you, what what do you think their actions would have been? Well, we was in a Soviet area. Bulgaria was a Soviet uh, country at the time. And without a doubt, you know, I would have been charged uh, with the spying and what it all had gone on back in Hamburg with the murder of their two secret policemen. And uh, not actually murder, but within the scuffle that went on, they, they, they did lose two and the Russian major uh, that, that was a traitor to their country, but they would have, they would have used that. I, I, I'm sure with all the debriefings we went through with uh, to show that I was a, a, an American spy, spying against the, the Soviet Union, and that I, I had an encryption machine in my hand that belonged to them. I had money to trying to bribe the major to pay for it, and uh, you had ten thousand dollars in your pocket. Ten thousand dollars in my pocket. And uh, uh, I would have been carried back into it's Russia. It's the perfect scenario from the Soviet standpoint. This is this could become a major international incident. Oh yeah, within the Cold War, that was what was going on in in in, uh, in the world at that time. It would have been it would have been a horrible situation uh, between the United States and the propaganda for them. And uh, and of course, I could have never admitted to spying, but and the United States would not have been behind me. I, I, we would have understood that very well that anything like this ever happened that, uh, uh, that you know, we'd strictly be on our own. How did that make you feel? You, you wouldn't have the backing of your country that you're sacrificing everything for. That's a that's a difficult and odd situation to be in. Well, I guess that's the ultimate sacrifice that down to the very end, you know. I understood that we could not admit to spying. And, 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 and those things go on in this world today. You know, there's instances that we read in the paper we don't understand what's what's behind and what's going on. But, you know, those similar type things happen in, in today's world. 
it's incredible to think about what what could have happened. I think of Gary Francis Powers in the the spy plane scenario and what that meant mm-hmm. for uh, relations between the Soviets and the United States. Sort of the repercussions of that. This this same incident could have could have exploded. It, this could it, have it been exploded. A, yeah, absolutely. And and Mr. Bob, you made a you made a decision there on that plane that this wasn't going to happen. And what did you do there on the plane? Uh, Barry, I had uh, uh, had been issued uh, a pen that I kept within myself just in case I ever got in such a situation as this as I was in at that time. Uh, a little secret area on top of that pen, I had a, 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 a capsule, uh, uh, liquid cyanide, and I knew that I could kill myself. And I had come to that. I, that's what I was going to do. I, I took that pill out. When I saw the, the Bulgarian... Uh, officials coming back aboard the plane uh, I knew that my time had come to the end and I was not going to let them take me off that plane and carry me back into Russia and charge with spying so forth and embarrassment to our country and everything else that would have taken place and uh, I put that pill I actually put it in my mouth and all I had to do was was chomp down on it make a couple of chews and I'd be dead just in a few seconds a couple of minutes maybe and uh, and I sat there with that pill in my mouth, just waiting for him to come toward me. And uh, and but suddenly the pilot uh, told us that uh, we were free to go. And uh, you know it, it sounded uh, unreal. Uh, you couldn't imagine the the feeling that you'd have with the fear and all that was going on. And suddenly you said, "Well, let's you, you can go. You're free. Uh, freedom, freedom is something that we we take for granted so much in our life." And uh, and we got we got we got to live and make freedom, but anyway, uh, yeah. So I kept that pill in my mouth till we was actually airborne. Uh, I kept that pill in my mouth uh, before I took it out. That's incredible. Uh, did you continue with the mission? Yes, we we we, uh, we flew on to uh, Istanbul. Uh, we were told that as before we debarked debarked the plane, that we would be carried as a group uh, in into an interview area. Uh, I guess it was making the big news in the airways of what the news was at that time in the world anyway. and uh, But I had a, 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 a what I call my shatter that I spoke previously about. Uh, I recognized him when I come, we come off the plane. We made motions to one another. And as we was going down a, a corridor of that airport there in Istanbul, he motioned for me to go through a doorway, and we both went through that doorway. It was a restroom. We run through that restroom and out another door into another corridor. And uh, uh, we went running dead long into the uh, uh, parking lot area. And we was in his car, and away we went. Uh, I told him, Izmir, that that's where our mission was. And he said, no, no, we're going to Ankara. And I said, no, no, our mission's in Izmir. And he said, no, we got orders to go to Ankara, which was an American Air Force base there in Turkey. Uh, drove all night. I had several all-night car trips getting out of some places during my time doing this. Uh, got to the Air Force Base about daybreak. Uh, I was given something to eat, and almost immediately I was on board a plane on my way back to Paris. Just flying, just me. Did get me out of all that mess and, and what was going on and within the world at that time. So did did the higher ups know what had happened to you? They they were. I'm they, sure. I'm sure, Tom. Yes, they knew that 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 plane that I was on had been forced down. Uh, how how the Russian secret police knew that I was on that plane? 
nobody knows. But uh, we had some suspect in interrogations and our debriefings that somehow somebody let the word out, maybe on purpose, who knows. Uh, how else would they have known that I'd been on that particular flight from Paris to Rome and Rome on, to, uh, on my way to Istanbul if somebody had not talked and said, hey, Bob Jones is is aboard a certain plane. If you're looking for him, he's there for the picking. And uh, But they missed you. That, it's an incredible story yeah. and really just mind-boggling as to why they, they didn't get you. They missed me because of... Because of because of God. Divine intervention. Divine intervention stepped up in my life. In 1955, you had a decision to make. Stay stay in the military or get out. You decided? I decided to get out. Uh, Tom, I, I, I had a, a good job offer to go back to Fort Meade, Maryland. In fact, I was back in Fort Meade, Maryland uh, when the offer was made. And uh, I, I had time to think about it, but I knew that uh, my life had to be somewhere else. I had married, of course, uh, earlier while I had been through, going through all this, and uh, I, I didn't have a girlfriend anymore. I had a wife that I, we need to be together. So uh, I elected to go back to Mount Pleasant and uh, become part of what I've been in civilian life since that time. What did it feel like after this large life that you had just led going back to Mount Pleasant, Tennessee? Was it a hard transition? Oh, yes, it was. And I... I uh, Tom, as I have told previously, my wife had no idea, no idea of what had gone on in my life. And you were sworn to secrecy I was for sworn a time to, period. For 15 years when I was discharged back into civilian life, I was sworn to secrecy from the NSA, and uh, uh, and I upheld that. But after that 15 years, you know, I I still didn't talk about it. I couldn't talk about it. I didn't want to talk about it, and and I didn't. And it was 62 years later that before I ever spoke about it, and that was uh, at a veterans tribute at uh, my local church. I was asked to speak uh, on my uh, uh, military experiences, and I had just a, a little bit previous that on a mission trip, I had spoke to the youth of our church, and uh, uh, and that's I told them a little bit about being a spy, and, and that just, I guess that opened the door. How did it feel to tell the story after all of that time? Oh, uh, a relief, Tom. It's like you know, being let out of a box. It's just all of a sudden, you know, uh, you was in the daylight and, and you could see something. And I still think about it a lot. I still think, I still dream about it uh, some, but nothing, nothing like it, it had lived within me for, for years and years and years. You've packed a lot of life into just a short period of time during your military service. Um, you saw some pretty horrible violence. Has that had an effect on you? In your life, how have you, and did the military help you cope with that, especially that trip in that trip to Germany? How, how have you I, been I able think, to handle that? I think some of the, the, the previous training of not growing close to one another, uh, 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 to be an individual, and and I, I was told that nobody else was really interested in who I was or who my life was or where I came from, and uh, that wasn't really true, but. You know, within your own soul, you, you get, begin to realize that, that, that we're all individuals, and, uh, and as this life goes on, you, you face what you have to face and do what you have to do from one day to the next. Mr. Bob, thank you for sharing your story with us. Uh, it's, it's an incredible story. I think there's so much to be learned uh, from that time period and, and how you are connected to it. Th thank you for sharing, sharing that with us. It, thank you, Tom. I can't, thank I can't you for the opportunity. You 
And Barry, thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) We'll end the show with this quote from the great military strategist Sun Tzu. He said, It is only the enlightened ruler and the wise general who will use the highest intelligence of the army for the purposes of spying, and therefore they achieve great results. Thank you for listening to History's Hook. We'll be back next week. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Saturday at 9 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM for a journey through time. Every morning, I park my car across the street from my business, and I can't wait to get in there. That's pretty common for small business owners. We have the added satisfaction, however, of guiding hundreds of families with their retirement, education, savings, and general investments. We're a locally owned business that tries very hard to simplify a complicated world. This is Monty Sneed from Caledonian Financial in Historic downtown Columbia. Securities and investment advisory services offered through NBC Securities Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Columbia Foodland is a locally owned and operated family grocery store with a full line of dry, dairy, frozen meat and produce items. We focus on keeping the freshest hand-cut meat and produce items daily with the most competitive prices in town. We offer weekly ad specials as well as in-store weekly specials throughout the store. Located at 427 West 7th Street in Columbia in the former Harris Foodland location. Columbia Foodland. We are here and ready to serve the wonderful people of Columbia and the surrounding areas. Hello, my name is Connor Mims. My wife Bradley and I live in Columbia, Tennessee in Riverside. I am a deck and porch builder and my wife is a second grade teacher at Riverside Elementary. My specialty is designing and building elegant and comfortable porches and decks. Let me work with you to design and build the porch or deck of your dreams. Give us a call today from our website, MimsModernLandscape.com. That's MimsModernLandscape.com and check out what we have to offer. Thanks. Yeah, I just want to say that your show is disgusting. Two white men and a white woman attacking a black man who's a Democrat, yet you have no balance to anything that you say. You act like a bunch of Southern You are ridiculous. You're a horrible show. You're a horrible representation of Tennessee. Y'all are disgusting. You're disgusting human beings. And either balance it out with someone who has a half a clue what they can talk about. You got a bus driver up there acting like he's better than him just because of what? I have no idea what his points are other than what Tucker Carlson told him what to say. Y'all are disgusting human beings. You need to get off the Three Dudes with a View, triggering liberals between Dollywood and Graceland, Monday through Thursday from 8 to 9 a.m., right here on WKOM 101.7 FM. This message is from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Did you serve in the military? If so, you can obtain a free lifetime pass to more than 2,000 federal recreation sites, including national parks, wildlife refuges, and forests. Getting a pass is easy. Just go to the National Park Service website, nps.gov, or the National Park Service app.
Have you heard the news? The Big Yellow School Bus with your host, Jack Cobb, with Murray County Public Schools has a new day and time. Hop on the Big Yellow School Bus Saturdays at 10 a.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM to hear all about what's happening in and around Murray County Public Schools. The Big Yellow School Bus with Jack Cobb and friends on Front Porch Radio Saturdays at 10 a.m. on WKOM 101.7 FM. This is Trip Stoltz with Columbia Ace Hardware. I love listening to 101.7 WKOM-FM, Columbia, Tennessee. 